0: This may surprise you, we're going to get to Genesis
1: in a minute, but I want to go to Hebrews chapter 11. So if you have a Bible, you go to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to go to Hebrews 11. Because it's been a while since we had a direct commentary on the book of Genesis in our Bibles.
0: One of the best
1: primitive principles, one of the best rules for interpretation of the Bible, especially things that are difficult is ask yourself this question, does the Bible speak to this? And many times, helpfully, the Bible speaks about the Bible. Early on in Genesis, especially as, it, as we talked through Abraham and considered uh, what was happening in his life and the test of faith that he had, there were many different places, especially the new Testament, where we could go because the writers commented on the exact events that we were reading about. Well, it's been a little while, just a little while since we had something after the what I want to read or share with you, share in scripture with you, Hebrews 11, verse 21, is an instance where the exact events that we're about to read about in Genesis 48 are described by the writer of Hebrews and they are commended to us as an act of faith, commended to us as something that is to be worthy of imitating. Jacob is often mentioned in the rest of the Bible, but most frequently he's Mentioned as a picture in the list of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it's not as frequent that his exact activities are mentioned and described or given some interpretation. But we do have that for us right now in front of us in Hebrews chapter 11. So before I jump back to Genesis 48 and begin reading, I want to use chapter 11, verse 21 of Hebrews as a little bit of a banner, a little bit of a sort of a statement over the top of what we're about to read. This is what the writer of Hebrews tells us. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. That little phrase in the game is interesting. By faith. Now, you may be acquainted with Hebrews well enough to realize that Hebrews 11 is kind of hall faith. It's a listing of people who hoped against hope. People who, because they had a vision and understanding of who God was, were able to do and committed their lives to be lived in a particular way that went against the grain, went against what they could see, went against what other people may say that God was obvious. And so, what we're going to find in Genesis 48, according to the Bible itself, is a record of Jacob acting with that kind of faith. So that's the been That's how we're supposed to interpret this chapter. Uh, According to the Bible itself, it tells us, well, this is what that meant. So now let's turn back, and I'm going to read the first few verses of Genesis 48 before we pause and pray. So Genesis 48. I'm going to read just the first four verses, and we'll pause before we together. This is what the 48th chapter of Genesis tells us starting the first verse. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took within his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at loose in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. Let's pause right there. Uh, I hope that you align your heart with mine, that we would humble ourselves and pray that God helps us to have insights and to have some clarity, some idea of what it is that He wants to communicate to us, and that we'd be able to order our lives accordingly. So I know that I'm microphone, and I'm gonna be praying out loud. As much as you can muster, let's not have just be a spectator word. Uh, let's try to stir in our hearts a desire to understand scripture. Let's pray. God, we acknowledge you as in control, as sovereign. We need that certainty. There's so much that we cannot control, so much that we could be anxious over. So much that we don't understand, and so today, as we gather, help us to remember who you are, and what you promised, and what we're your people. And God, now, as we've read scripture, these words that you've given to us, things that we know, these words that we know to we'll be living and active, we ask, the Spirit of God, would you rest here in power? And would your ministry, Holy Spirit, be for us? Give us eyes to see that where we have dim vision or sleepy eyes, that you would allow us to open our eyes, to look upon you, to see. And I pray the same thing, Spirit of God, give us ears. May we be attentive to Scripture, to your beckoning. I pray, God, that you help me to be a benefit, to be a blessing, to be an encouragement. We want to be united. We're your people. We have an inheritance in you that is secure. And I pray that we would live according to your call. So, God, help us to do that now. All of our distractions and our sins and our disappointments, all of the good things in life uh, that, that all to us, God, I pray that today, here, now, as we come to your word, that it will be yours completely and amen. You know, the moments of a person's death are precious. Death is a terrible thing, it's an unnatural thing. And anyone who has approached death, especially with those whom they and they walk with closely those who they love, it rarely ever, ever, ever goes according to the plan. And that is, of course, because as a result of sin, temporal death is in many ways not part of the plan. We may into God and something in us beats on after us and longs for significance. And so whenever we come to a moment in the Bible and we look at it, and consider the last moment of someone's death, I don't want to past that. I believe that these are good lessons for us. These are things that we can learn from. To remember our ends. The 7 tells us that the wise among us will take these things to heart because this is the end of everyone. I remember one of my first experiences with death close up. I had gone on a trip to visit my girlfriend at the time. She was living far away, we the long distance is a miracle in itself. We made. It. When I went to visit her over spring break in this particular year, her grandmother got very, very, very ill, and this whirlwind sort of surrounded us. And I remember going with her and her family to the hospital and being present. Sometimes in the room and then in the hall. The sort of hushed whispers, the moments of sweetness, and the tears being shared, and the scriptures being read, hymns being prayed. And I remember the moment just feeling totally and completely unprepared. but right? do I understand the significance of these moments? How is this supposed to look? It didn't take any convincing in those particular moments that. That this time, these words and these things that are shared between family members are of significance. Some years later, I had an experience with my own grandparents. My grandfather, who to me was a mentor, the person I wanted to be my whole life. He had to be transferred to a, a sort of assisted, more than assisted living, but a, a care center all a number of surgeries and struggling with dementia and Alzheimer's at that particular time, and one night I got a call from my mom. And she said, I really think that grandpa needs someone to go sit with him. And so when I'm a dad and kids kid this time, I'm working, all the stuff going on, I jump in the car, I remember just focusing and thinking, what do I do? And how do I feel about this particular model? And By that time, my grandfather, who had been so strong my whole life, Was feeble. It took nearly everything in in him to to sit a little bit up. You could tell the strain, just to recognize him, say my name. I sat there at different times. I watched him go through uh, different stages of dying, and he began to see things in the room, and he was scared. At some point, he wanted to hold my hand like he was a little child and ask me to see if everything was going to be okay. I sat there for a number of hours in that room. I remember just thinking, thinking about the words that you was saying, thinking about the moments that I was sharing, and watching what it looked like for someone to face death. And realizing in those particular moments, that what was most true, what was most loved, what was most Evidence of the way the person lived came into complete clarity in a lot of, a lot of times in those moments. And what we're going to read and what we've already begun to read in Genesis 48 is a moment like that. And the reason that I tell these stories, and the reason that I point out these moments of death is because oftentimes, as we read a history book, a narrative, we can feel very divorced from these things. These are not our people, this is not our place, this is not our time, these are our customs, it's not our language. And yet, nonetheless, you must realize that when Jacob is facing death, the moments that he shares with his loved ones, their actions toward him, the things that he says, what he's hoping in, how he's acting are massively significant. It is why something that seems like a religious custom maybe as any other. I believe it's why it's commented on Hebrews 11 to be remembered. Now remember, remember what Jacob did in those moments on his dying bed. Remember how he acted. Remember what he said. And
0: remember where he
1: postured himself. Remember how, remember how he was positioned. And for those of us, so we've been given eyes to see and for those of us who are trusting in God and wanting to know what we're supposed to see is the man of faith in these verses. And this faith, I believe, is going to come out in a couple of different ways. The first is in the form of a proclamation that we just read, and then the second, and more specifically, especially according Hebrews 11, is in adoption. Now, when I say the word adoption, I think there's, if this is a Full is the word adoption can mean, but I think that nonetheless. So the first thing I want to point out is the blessing that Joseph receives in this proclamation from David. This exchange between the two of them is especially sweet. Depending on your sentiment, depending on the kind of person you are, you may say to yourself, it's not quite as sweet as their meeting outside of Egypt. When they fall on one another's necks, and they weep, and they cry, but this has to be close, I think, to that. Joseph comes because he hears that his father is ill. He hears that his father is ill, and I don't want to escape past it, that he took with him his two sons, and he went. Going to people and being near them, only to death is a difficult thing. My guess is that for some of us, even hearing the descriptions that I just described earlier is difficult. Perhaps it was a personal experience, because it is wildly and uncomfortable. But that is a difficult thing. And so Joseph is showing ultimate honor here. Remember what Joseph is doing. It's not going to be insignificant. He was essentially running the economy of the world at the time. And when he hears that your father is ill, he takes time. He pauses everything else. He honors his dad by stopping and going. There's one bit of the sweetness between them. And then Jacob, who is frail, he is the exact, in many ways, the opposite picture of Joseph. Joseph would have had reason not to honor because he was so strong and busy. Jacob, he could excuse from honor. Because he was so frail and near death. But it is described for us that in the last moments, Jacob, upon hearing that Joseph has come, summons his strength and he sits up. You get the picture of Joseph coming in, and you're wondering what are some of these last words going to be? What will Jacob say? And the blessing, the faith that Jacob offers is this proclamation he recounts all of the ways that God had been faithful to him, all of the promises that he had given. He describes essentially the covenant in his own words, and he wants to make sure that if he leaves Joseph with anything, he leaves him with a reminder of what God had told him. And I believe that as this proclamation is the first evidence of faith in Genesis 48, Jacob is in a foreign land. He does not have all kinds of stuff he has increased a bit over the last 20 years, but probably not according to what he would have desired. He has been separated much of his life from the people that he loves. He's lived in sadness. He described in the last chapter that he's endured essentially an evil and hardship. And yet the thing that he is clinging to, there in this bed in a foreign lands, not sure what's going to come of him or the people after him, what he's clinging to is the promise that God made him. He is living. Some people may have said, he is living in darkness by remembering what God told him in the light. This description of what he's saying here, this idea God the light appeared to me at Luz, this is the old name, the old city name for what was renamed by Jacob Bethel. A small detail in Genesis 28 that reminds us that this word that describes back what he's describing, the account, the experience, Sweetness that he shared with his God at Bethel. And there's Jacob at the end of his life, not praying. He doesn't know the succession plan, he doesn't have a lawyer with him to spell out the will. But he is confident because by faith he has grasped onto who God is, his presence, and his promises. This example to Joseph is a major, major blessing. This example of faithfulness that Hebrews 11 reminds us of. In his dying days, remember what Jacob did? This is not to be looked over. I would say this as definitively as I, as I can. It is a blessing to the world, especially to those around a person, for a person to suffer well. It's been said that one of the jobs of the church, one of the most significant jobs of the church, is to prepare people to die well. Because
0: one of the greatest lessons that
1: we can offer in our frailty and weakness and in our suffering is to suffer well, to suffer with faith, to suffer in hope. And so, Jacob, what faith? To be dying well. And more than that, what a gift he gives to Joseph to recount the goodness of God's life. I don't believe that we do this as often as we should. In Scripture our confession is a major, major thing. I don't know what's so going Are we disaster point or is it just a little bit annoying? Just a little bit annoying still? I'm trying to keep the train of thought and all the time I'm thinking, okay? Here. <laughs> 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 Something we don't do Often enough, I believe, is to rehearse and then share our confession of faith. In scripture, it says, If you hold fast to your confession, you will endure and receive inheritance. The question becomes, What is a confession? why in membership classes, we always ask someone, as a prerequisite to membership, Can you explain in your own words what is the gospel? To actually think through and be able to confess these things as a gift. It's a gift to your friends, it's a gift to those who don't think like you, it's a gift to those who do think like you, within your families, parents, as much as you can. Now, you may not encounter the kind of why I wonder for your kids that you wish you could have in your spiritual lessons to them,
0: but don't give up as often
1: as you can. recount for them why you have trusted God and how he has shown up in your life again and again and again. Don't leave a legacy where your children long to inherit your 401k, but not your experience with God. Describe for them the riches that you've been given in a faithful walk with Jesus. Just tell them,
0: "Hey, I remember
1: struggling with what you struggled with. I remember wondering how my sins could be forgiven. I remember thinking the things that you think. Yeah, the world is a crazy place, and that lots of people believe different things, and it's." Odd that we die. Well, what does science say about this? And where you have with God, and he has met you recount these things. Say them out loud. This is a blessing. And this is Jacob's faith. To say it, to describe it, to give as an inheritance his faith to his son. It's what faithfulness looks like. And I would say, especially for those of us who have been discouraged by the response perhaps from our words, is to remember that whenever and wherever our faith in God is proclaimed and pressed out into the world, God has promised to bless. God has promised and I believe is pleased by those who name him and proclaim him and walk with him all the way through the end. So if you had to ask me, and I know that in, in a sense, implicitly you are, because you're here, here I am. If you ask me, well, what does this mean according to Jacob's faith, that the Hebrews 11 says it is, the first thing I would say is that we should pay attention to Jacob's proclamation. He's holding on. I'm going to get it. He's holding on. It's like suffering. It's like your memory. Secondary though, and perhaps the we'll point of that I think it's pointed out specifically in chapter 11 is this adoption that comes up next. And so I'm going to start reading the fifth verse now of Genesis 48, Genesis 48, 5. Genesis 48, 5. We're more or less going to finish down to the, the rest of the chapter. Here's what is recounted for us. After his proclamation, verse 4, he says this And now, your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon And the children that you followed after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers and their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Potip, to, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephraim. And I buried her there in the way of Ephraim. That is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. But Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them, and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself in his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands. For Manasseh was the first one. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. The God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them, let my name be carried on, in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it, from Ephraim's hand to Manasseh's hand. Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the first one. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he shall also, also be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessing, saying, God made you as Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim us Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, and Joseph Old, I'm about to die. But God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers of one mountain sword that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. This specific and special engagement between Jacob and Joseph's son, sons are considered, considered to be, and, and is in fact a very significant adoption. What is taking place here is that Jacob is interpreting what he proclaimed to Joseph, this plan, this blessing, this covenant that God made with him that his ancestors were going to be great. His ancestors, Jacob's ancestors, are going to be great. They're going to inherit land. There's going to be kings that come from them. And upon seeing Joseph, who he's been separated from for decades, a particular time in his life, Now Joseph brings to him sons that were born not to a Hebrew woman, not to an Israelite, but born to someone who was likely the daughter of a priest of a foreign cult, living in a foreign land. That is their ancestry according to the world and Jacob is going to reinterpret who they are and call to them and welcome them into God's family. What Jacob sees is the potential. In these children, the potential for them to walk away from the covenant that God had given to them, to live according to the standards of the world, to inherit. In fact, they have pretty good inheritance if you think of. Imagine being Joseph's children. You have grown up doing nothing but being in charge and pampered and well off. You are known, respected, likely bowed to. Your dad runs everything. And then, at a the particular moment in your life, you're being introduced to your grandfather, who is feeble and weak, is a shepherd who lives out of a country, who has nothing, who all your hidden friends believe in an abomination, because he's a shepherd. And you're brought to this dying man. And Jacob puts his hand on their heads and
0: blesses them. He welcomes them
1: into his family. And by faith says these children these children the ones who didn't come about in the proper way didn't come about in the way that you'd imagine who don't have a pure parent set these children will be God's and they will carry on the promise and they will live in the promised land and God's covenant will go through them and that is a bold claim He calls out, essentially, to be true, something that is not yet true. He calls forth what he cannot see. These grandsons of his, in particular, we have no reason to believe that they would desire the wandering, sojourning, secondary, humble life of David's family. But Jacob, in faith, says, oh, yes, they will." Generations will follow because God has told me generations will follow. We we'll go back to the beginning of Genesis 48. How do you start the whole thing? Why is this by faith? Because he says to Joseph, Here's what God promised me I'm going to be a company of peoples, and they're going to have a land for everlasting possession. And so some of the details of this exchange are significant, but the big picture should be remaining before us, and that is that Jacob is calling forth from his grandchildren something that he believes and knows that God has promised him. When you think about the specifics, uh, they're, they're actually kind of funny. In this custom, the person who would have been blessed with the right hand would have been considered favored. This was a place of significance to be at the right hand. And so the text makes note here that Joseph is very very Bring the firstborn. And now he goes up, he's on Joseph's left, he pressed forward. Jacob can't see, so he grabs his hands and he goes to put them on his head. And then you can see blind old Jacob reaching out, feeling the hands over the head, and then he sits under the mist. And then Joseph grabs under his hands, no, no, evil father. Ha <laughs> ha, that's so funny. I told you, this is the firstborn We're here. He grabs his hand and he tries to. You can see Jacob is being quiet. I like <laughs> <laughs> he says, no, "No, the Spirit of God led me this way. This is the way that this is going to be." Much like Jacob's life, he is reminding Joseph. And the other thing that he's noticing by faith is that God has the freedom and the good pleasure to bring about His covenant kind of promises in the way that He sees fit, and oftentimes it will not go according to human custom. We've seen it already in Genesis, and now we're seeing it again. Human custom and human effort and human desire cannot move nor shape the plan of God in history because he is ultimately and totally free to bring things about in the way that he pleases. And many times he's going to do that by taking the lesser and making it the greater. Have to believe that God delights in showing the world not only that they cannot command things from Him, but also that for this to have taken place, it must have been the hand of God for his no only reason. How could it be that the lower, the lesser, the one below ends up being the one of inheritance, the, the greater, the better? The answer throughout history, of course, is his plan the hands of God. Jacob is acting in faith. Faith by proclaiming and remembering the confession. Then faith by acting out in real time the blessing of going to take for these children to walk in his ways in the years to come. One of the ways I believe that we will remain faithful he said to me, well, what are we going to learn from this? And why are they still learning? And the question be people like this, how are And why are they still learning from Jacob all the way, those hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later, on the other side of Jesus?
0: Why do the writer of Hebrews insist
1: that Jacob can still be learned from? And I would say that one of the greatest lessons to be learned from Jacob in his faithfulness in his final days in the adoption of his grandchildren is to remember that Jacob's final years, his final moments are focused on passing the covenant and the promise and the presence of God on to his children. The next generation are significant in Jacob's eyes. Not only because God insisted that there would be inheritance through them, but because Jacob knows that he is about to die, he won't last forever. He can't secure this thing himself. So there is an innate thing that's kind of funny in the Christian life. And here's the thing that is kind of interesting about Christianity. I'll keep yelling at that. Here's the thing that is innate. All of us know when we say out loud or not that Christianity, for the most part, humanly speaking, Dies, it doesn't get passed on. Somewhere between Jacob and you, sitting here right here this morning, is an unbroken line of people proclaiming the promises of God and then trusting that by his spirit he's going to have to bring house. How many people in our mind between right now and after Jacob do you think were completely and utterly, as far as human terms are concerned, uninterested in God? Do you believe there were moments when someone could have said, That's it, i give up? That's it, my child is too far gone. Or that's it, there's too much government pressure. Or that's it, I'm not good at sharing my faith. Or that's it, I'm just a little bit tired and no one knows the suffering that I've been through. Or maybe that's it, there's no money, how can we maintain the church? Or maybe that's it, we're not picking cool enough and everyone's walking to that light show over there. How many times
0: could God's people have
1: been tempted to forget, to proclaim, to forget to focus on the years to come, to forget to pass down the faithfulness of God in their words and their life. And yet here we are. And I believe that Jacob smiles. He's like, yep, yeah, I told you. I told you, God came to me at Bethel and he promised me this. The Bible tells us that now all of us, by faith are in Abraham, share as ancestors Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob.
0: And Jacob changes
1: his hands, and he's dying, he can't see, he doesn't have much, he's in a foreign land still. But here's what he tells his son Stop doubting him. I'll tell you what's going to happen. God will be faithful from now to the end. We have an eternal possession. And look at you, part of that eternal possession. Look at us in the line of Jacob. What Genesis and the story of God's work in his people through the ages invites us to do is to see ourselves not as individual, not as captive to our moments, not as a single generation but those who have a great inheritance, those who are here because of the faithfulness of countless generations. And so every week we come together and we proclaim. And every week we remind ourselves of the adoption that we have in God's family. And every single week, so many of you drop your little ones off in the back. And we pray over them. And we tell them who God is. And we remind them of the Bible stories. And much of the time they'd rather be (laughs) cramps. But when we pray, we pray by faith. And here's what he said, God's made promises. And God's got to come and keep it. And in Jesus Christ, one day, knee will bow and he will have an inheritance that is more numerous than can be counted. And so we keep proclaiming, and we keep focusing, and we keep believing that God will preserve his church and his people down through the ages. Jacob's faith is an invitation to us to see ourselves in this line, to get out of our own little world, to receive and to remember and to honor the inheritance we have, but then more than that, to we'll ask ourselves what am I doing to commend this faith to the next generation? I don't know, I'm kind of motivated right now to have come up here and give you a pitch. I promise that was the point. But ask yourself nonetheless. Is there anything about the words that I say, the things that I recount, the way I complain? Is there anything about the lessons that I'm offering that is focused on passing this faith down? I'm going to read my favorite psalm. Psalm 145 is my favorite psalm. I'm going to read the first 13 verses, and one of my favorite things about Psalm 145 is the way that it consistently shifts between grace. And confidence for the future. And by future, I mean future generations. Praise, confidence in future generations. Praise, confidence in what God will do in future generations. And I believe that by reading this and framing these things, we may get a little bit close to the faith that Jacob showed in Genesis 48. This is the 145th Psalm. I will extol you, my God and King. And bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Now let's end this part of the song. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate.
0: They shall speak of the might of your awesome
1: deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding and in and steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of men your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. We'll pause there. What about Psalm 145? It's the way that personal worship intertwines so beautifully and inescapably with the generations. Our faith is a faith of our fathers. And if our faith is to be certain and to be true, it will also be the faith of our children after us. This is something to be meditated upon. Something to be desirous of, doing well. So I want to take a moment and I want to pray with you that so we would have faith like David. let pray. I thank you for the confidence, both of Jacob and of Psalm 45. I thank you think for the example of extolling your, your name forever and ever. I pray that we would have this kind of consistency that, come what may, suffering, frailty, and even death itself, In our commitment to praising you and confessing you day after day after day, so long as you give us breath. God keep us that faithful, and I pray as well that you give us confidence. The kind of confidence that Jacob had about the future of the people. We don't guarantee that our church name or our place or our significance will go on forever, but we have confidence to know that you will be faithful to your people forever.
0: And God, I do. I pray
1: for our children. I pray that they would know you and love you. I pray that when they hear us describing our wrestling with you, the way you've been present in our lives, that they would long for that kind of experience with you. God, I ask for the young people in our world to hear a faithful gospel from their elders, their ancestors. And then God, I pray that you would move by your spirit to bring about a renewal a reviving in grandchildren and young women and young men that they would dream dreams of your kingdom coming to pass. That they would have a strong vision to not neglect or to be enamored by the world that offers so much comfortable life. They would see the richness the inheritance that they have in you. So God, we pray today, individually struck by and thankful for the faithfulness of our forebears, and we ask that one generation, our generation, command your words to another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.